This video is brought to you by Devout Decals, makers of reusable Catholic art for your home altar, your bedroom, and your home classroom. The church is in crisis. We know that. That's what we cover here on this channel every single day. And it's worth reminding ourselves that some people saw this coming. Some that even some of you would say were complicit in this saw what was coming. I have maintained that Fulton Sheen was quite aware of the crisis that was coming in the church. In fact, I suspect his participation and endorsement of Vatican II was actually an attempt to sort of head off those crises. And I can tell that he had some buyer's remorse when you see the things he spoke of towards the end of his life. And I have one of those sort of addresses here for you now. This is his famous talk on the fourth crisis in the church. He gave this just a couple of years before he passed away. And there's, I would have the video of it here for you if I could, but unfortunately there is some organization now going out there looking for all the Fulton Sheen video clips they can find and claiming a copyright on them, even if they don't actually have the copyright on it. And I could fight that with YouTube, but it would require eventually going to court. So it's not worth it. But I have here the transcript of his address. I'm going to go over with you here. You see, Fulton Sheen was clearly reading the signs of the times so borrow one of the titles of his famous works. And he was applying that logic to what we had seen at the time when he gave this in 1974. And bearing in mind that he witnessed some of the most horrific events of the 20th century and was active as a priest and a bishop during many of those events, he is but putting two and two together. One would wonder what he would think of the state of the church today. In this conference, I'm going to tell you about the way the world is going and what we may expect, and what we should do. First of all, we are at the end of Christendom. Now, not Christianity, not the Church. Remember what I am saying. We are at the end of Christendom. What is Christendom? Christendom is the economic, political, social life as inspired by Christian principles. That is finished. We've seen it die. Look at the signs, the state of the family, divorce, the Moloch ritual, immorality, general dishonesty. About 50 years ago, in one of the big Protestant churches of New York, a Mrs. Vanderbilt came into this church after her divorce, and all the Protestant people turned their backs on her. That would not happen today. The greatest historian of our times, and he has written 10 volumes on the study of history, has said that of 22 civilizations that have decayed from the beginning of the world up until the present time, 19 decayed from within, only 3 from without. Lincoln said, I have no fear that America will ever be destroyed without, but I fear that it may be destroyed from within. There are two kinds of barbarians, the active barbarians from without, and the passive barbarians from within. We are not in as much danger from the active barbarians as we are from the passive ones. Anyone who has been in this country and left it for five years and then comes back is shocked at what he sees. We live in it from day to day and we do not see the decline. We take it for granted. We get used to things and almost accept them as the rule. I could go on to labor this point, but I think you have sufficient experience to realize that the air we breathe, the press that we read, the television that we see, is in no instance inspired by Christian principles. As a matter of fact, there is on the part of many of us the tendency to go down to meet the world, not to lift the world up. We are afraid of being unpopular, so we go with the crowd. So this is my first point. We are at the end of Christendom. Not of Christianity, not of the church. Now, let us think of the church. 
within this body of culture, and I am speaking of the Western world, the strongest part of the world, even from the natural point of view, is in the Great Bear of the East and their southern rising neighbor. <clears throat> There's hardly any immorality in the latter. There are no conductors on London buses. You just drop your coin in. Can you imagine what who would take a bus here if there were no one to collect fare? Who would ever pay? The natural virtues are a thousand times higher in the hammer and sickle countries than here. We're not speaking of the supernatural virtues, but that could well be too on account of the sufferings of Christians there. So in regards to the church, we are living in the fourth 500-year period of church history. And the church is not a continuing thing. It dies and rises again. It proceeds on the principle of Christ himself as priest and victim. We go along for a long while and we die. Like the serpent, we shed our skin. Like nature itself, we shed our leaves. And there comes a defeat, seeing decay. We're put in the grave and then we rise again. We've had four deaths in our Christian history. The first was the fall of Rome in the first 500-year period, although Rome actually fell at the beginning of the 5th century. Rome had become Christian. There had been martyrs, saints, for two centuries or more. And then suddenly, after Rome becomes Christian, lo and behold, the active barbarians from without come in and destroy Rome. And Rome fell as nothing has fallen since Satan fell from the heavens. Poor St. Jerome was in the cave in Bethlehem doing the scriptures. He said, the whole world was turned upside down. And St. Augustine, this great bishop of North Africa, would go about preaching on the fall of Rome. And he talked about it so much that people used to say, say, pocket de Rome. Oh, if he'd only shut up about Rome. He spent 18 years writing the city of God. You can find that in English translation in St. Augustine's commentary on the fall of Rome, blaming it on the Christians. The church died then, and then what happened? It came to birth. It then became missionary. Then. Then St. Augustine went to England. Patrick to Ireland, Cyril and Methodius to Eastern Europe. Then began the rebirth of the church. Then around the year 1000, we had another decay. There was the uh, invasions from the desert. Th they swept within 120 miles of Paris, the great battle of Poitiers. And they came around, formed a crescent, came up to the gates of Vienna. And then we had the schisms, the schism of Constantinople, of Photius and Michael Cerellius, which the church was split, seemed to be the end of everything. And then we came to life again. Then came the third period, when the church became rotten, when nuns began defecting, as they are today. Priests began defecting, of the, as they are today. The pontiffs were not good. Pope Leo X was away from Rome for two months on a hunting trip. Church seemed to be at an end. Then the reformers came, but the reformers almost always reformed the wrong thing. They began reforming the faith. There was nothing wrong with the faith. It was the morals that needed to be reformed. It's not a renewal, really. It is a moral reformation that is needed today, too. So that was the third end. Then we came to life again. Now we're in the fourth period and we are rotting. We're spoiled. No great zeal, no great learning, no great fire. We're just against things so often. So the church is being declared dead. It's a favorite pastime of the press to write articles that Christianity is dead. But anyone who knows history is not particularly disturbed. But the enemy of each of the 500-year period has been separate and distinct. We had, and here I am speaking of enemies generally within the church, the first 500 years. The rotting process came from false doctrines, centering around the historical person of Christ. Who was he? How many intellects did he have? How many wills did he have? How many natures? How many persons? They were called the Christological heresies. So the church was split open, and that was one of the reasons that made it possible for those from the desert to develop. Because we became so technical in our theology in those days, people were looking for simplicity. Just as in New England, we got a... We got Unitarians out of Calvinistic extremes in this country. So, too, we got the 
those from the desert, out of all the theological refinements and distinctions of the first five centuries. Those were the attacks. And for the next 100 years, the attack was really on the head of the church, because the Eastern Church broke with the authority of the successor of Peter, and these are the errors we had to combat. In the 16th century, it was not the head that was attacked, it was the body, the body of Christ, the mystical body, the church. What is the attack today? It is not schisms about the historical Christ, it is not an attack on the head, it is not an attack on the body of the church. Our enemy today is the world, the spirit of the world. Today we have con to conform to the world or we're branded. Our Lord said, I have taken you out of the world. We say, no, we have to win the world, and to win it, you have to be one with it. Our Lord said, I pray not for the world. He was praying for the spirit of the world. And this is the easiest, easiest kind of way to fall off the log, is worldliness. It's so simple. And if we justified by 1,000 reasons, namely the Vatican Council said we had to go into the world. Indeed, but not to be worldly, which is quite a different matter. So this is our attack today. There are three classes of people in the world. Wise men, knaves, and fools. Wise men deem to do good, and they do it. Knaves deem to do evil, and do it. The fools will do right or wrong, depending upon which is the more popular. They're divided into light fools and dark fools. The light would rather do what is right, but will do wrong if it's popular, and the others would rather do wrong, but they will do right if that happens to be popular. Now, this is the situation we're in today, and this is one of the basic causes of our degeneration and of our passing. We're decaying. What about it? What is the answer? The answer is these are great and wonderful days in which to be alive. I thank God that I am young. Don't laugh now. I thank God that I'm young in order that I can live in these days. Because these days of testing, 20 years ago, 30, 40 years ago, was easy to be questioned. The atmosphere was Christian. Morals were Christian. There was no great problem in adapting ourselves to a Christian society. But now when everything has turned around these days, the illusion has, has been removed and we reveal ourselves just as we really are. Then we could float with the current. Today the current is against us. And today the mood of the world is go with the world. Go with the spirit. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters. Both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Remains float downstream. Only the living resist the current. And so the good Lord is testing us. That's why these are great days. He tested those Christians who, deal, who live under the hammer and sickle. He tested German Christians during the war, and how many fell. He is testing the Western Christians with worldliness, and how many of us are falling. Read the story of the Israelites in the desert. God said, I tested you for 40 years. That's what he's doing. We're showing what we really are now. St. John says in his epistle, They did not love us, really, from the beginning. That is why they left us. And so the souls that are falling away are just falling to meet the test. Very much like the test that our elder brothers had when they, the one time they were within 12 miles of the Holy Land, and it only took three weeks to come to Egypt. They were 40 years wandering in the desert. Why? Because of their disobedience. Now the Lord sent them around in circles going crazy in that desert. And then when finally they came to the very point where they were to enter, Moses sent spies in to cross over the River Jordan. They went into Jericho, close by. They came back and they said to Moses, The people are as numerous as grasshoppers and the walls reach to the heavens. The Hebrew language has no superlative degrees, so they talk like your children. 
Children would say, oh, it reached up to the stars. That was their way of saying that the walls were very high. And for a multitude of men, well, they were like grasshoppers because they were common. So when the twelve came back, ten of them said, we cannot go in, they are too strong. The majority report. The majority is not always right. A bad majority could vote us out of democracy. So we cannot go in because they were the majority. They began to affect all the Israelites. But no, we can't go in now. Two of them, the minority report, Caleb and Joshua. Caleb and Joshua said, sure, they're big, sure, they're strong, sure, they're numerous. But God said, it's our land and we can take it. And they were the only two that went to the promised land. There was one whole generation of our elder brothers that perished in the desert. And of the twelve, only these two, Caleb and Joshua, entered the promised land. The minority report, and that's what we're going to have to be in the church, is a minority report. A minority report of sisters, a minority report of priests, a minority report of laity. Not the minority that's aggressive and problem-making, but the minority like Caleb and Joshua, that trust in God. So we're tested just as they were tested. And God is doing with us, perhaps today, what he did with Gideon. Remember, Gideon had to go out to meet the army. The Midianites had an army of 65,000. And God said, Gideon, your army is too great. Gideon had 30,000 soldiers to meet an army of 65,000. And God said, your army is too great. God said to Gideon, tell your cowards to leave. How many cowards? 20,000. So Gideon had 10,000 men. God said, your army is too great. Send them to the river and watch them drink. Some of them threw themselves prone upon their stomachs and drank leisurely and comfortably and sufficiently. Another lying along the riverbank lapped at the water with her hands in the fashion of dogs and drank. And God said, that's your army, the 300, but I'll be with you. And of course, Gideon won. So these days, therefore, our ranks are being thinned. God does not expressly say to the church, tell your cowards to leave. They just leave. God doesn't make it some kind of papal decision. Say that, well, the majority opinion is wrong. Those that get the ear of the press. Nobody allows things to work out this particular way. Then will come, not in our time, but not far after our time. And perhaps in the time of something, then will come the battles of the testing. Our Lord said, Satan will sift you as wheat, and we're being sifted as wheat. So we can all thank God that we live in these days. Really, it's beautiful. Now we can say I or nay. We can bear up under the, the, under the scrutiny, criticism, the ridicule, because this is the love of the Christians in the days of the spirit of the world. The great poet T.S. Eliot wrote a poem about anti-heroes. That's why men should love the church, in which he very subtly suggests maybe hard times are coming for the creative minority, and why we should love the church in these days. It is hard for those who have never known persecution and who have never known a Christian to believe these tales of Christian persecution. And that is true. I have talked to audiences and told them about, for example, the suffering of the missionaries, the sufferings of some people in the East, in the East that I know that suffered for their faith, and they would not believe it. And T.S. Eliot goes on to say, It is hard for those who live near a bank to doubt the security of their money. It is hard for those who live near a police station to believe in the triumph of violence. Do you think that the faith has conquered the world and that lions no longer need keepers? Do you need to be told that whatever has been can still be? Do you need to be told that even such modest attainments as you can boast in the way of polite society will hardly survive the faith to which they owe their significance? Men polish your teeth on rising and retiring. Women polish your fingernails. You polish the tooth of the dog and the talon of the cat. In other words, there's going to be opposition. Why should men love the church? Why should they love her laws? She tells them of life and death and of all they would forget. She is tender where they would be hard and hard where they would like to be soft. She tells them of evil and sin and other unpleasant facts. They constantly try to escape, in the darkness outside and within, by dreaming of systems so perfect that no one will need to be good, 
but the man that is will shadow, the man that pretends to be. But the Son of Man is crucified always, and there shall be martyrs and saints. And if the blood of martyrs is to flow on the steps, we must first build the steps. If the temple is to be cast down, we must first build the temple. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. It's not a gloomy picture. It is a picture of the church in the midst of increasing opposition from the world. And therefore, live your lives in full consciousness of this, our testament, and rally close to the heart of Christ. So, what do we have to do who are the minority? For there will always be those, for example, who will not even want to hear, lest they will be called upon to change. And if there is anything that has to be restored in our day, I would say it would be violence. The kingdom of heaven is one that way, and only they shall conquer it. Just as we begin to drop something in the church, the world begins to pick it up. As we drop celibacy, some Protestant religions are today asking for celibate men to go on missions. As we drop our beads, hippies pick them up and hang them around their neck. As the nuns drop the long habits, the girls put on maxi coats. As we drop mysticism, the young people go in for natural sources of such things. Everything that we're dropping, they are picking up. And we dropped the physical form, discipline, commitment to the cross, and the world picked it up. And that's why it's unsafe in the streets. That's why there's no stopping the problems in the country. We just have to buy more locks, hire more police, build more hospitals. Why? Because there's no more reason on the inside why they should stop. Dostoevsky said, There are two ages to man. The ascent of man to the death of God, but from the death of God to the annihilation of man. When God is denied, everything is allowable. So when we drop, drop, discipline, mortification in our own lives, the world will begin to pick it up. This is why we're paying for dropping it. Our blessed Lord said, I have come to bring the sword, not peace. We're always talking about peace, peace, peace. Yes, because of that war. But we're not making war on ourselves, and there's not going to be any peace in the world until we make war on ourselves. Our Lord said, I came not to bring peace, but the sword. He never used the word peace until after Easter. That's one of the reasons why I always find it hard to join in a prayer for peace. It's just simply a kind of a prayer which we forget. That's all we have to do is say, dear Lord, listen to us. We don't want to be trouble. We've got the boys being, you know, taken down, but we'll just go on the way we are. That's not peace. Our Lord brought the sword, not the sword to thrust outward against the enemy, the sword that cuts inward against ourselves, putting on the seven pallbearers of the soul, pride and covetousness, lust and anger, envy, gluttony, and sloth. And we're given up the sword. Someone else has to take it, and we have to restore it. Then we'll get peace. And peace is never corporate. It's never social until it is first individual. Social peace. World peace, the extension of individual peace in our hearts. When we're right with God, then we'll be right with our fellow man. When we're not right with God, then we'll, we'll be wrong with everyone else. That's the reasoned explanation St. James gives of conflict. That is why this holy hour, the reason that this retreat has been based around the holy hour, a, a little affliction to ourselves. I hope that all of you will take it seriously, every single day, one continuous hour before our Lord and the Blessed Sacrament, not only for our own souls, for the world, and to strengthen our minority. As others are leaving, we'll be stronger. The Lord is keeping reserves. He's training us. We'll make the entry. We'll prepare for a new church. And he's with us. We just simply cannot lose. We've already won, as a matter of fact. Only the news has not yet leaked out. 
So it's affliction that has to be restored. And the great enemy that we hear is the enemy that said to our Lord on the cross, come down, we'll believe. We'll believe. We'll believe anything you say if you don't mention the cross. Will you believe what our Lord said about the Trinity? Yes. About the Eucharist? Yes. About naming Peter? Yes. We'll believe anything they said, anything, but just come down from that cross. That is all. We ask that what we hear today on retreat tell us about liturgy. Tell us about the social order. Tell us about injustices. Talk politics. Anything, we'll believe anything you say. Only don't talk about the cross. Stop it. Come down. We'll believe. But he did not come down. Why? Because the human to come down. Because if he came down, he never would have saved us. It's divine to hang there. That was Blessed Fulton Sheen on the fourth crisis in the church. And today we hear from authorities in the church, essentially a gospel without the cross and a gospel that's political and that's material. Focus on the world, they say. The thermometer problem. Laudato C2. Perhaps just once we should hear a sermon from a high-ranking, high-profile prelate to stop sinning. Let me know what you thought of that in the comments, please. Like and subscribe if you haven't, it does help. So to sharing this on social media, that helps too. As always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.